electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the biggest risk to your money and why for the first time in a year it is not the COVID crisis. What one big firm just said about the markets that has a lot of people talking today, we will discuss and debate with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today are Josh Brown. Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. John Nigerian's with us. Michael Farr is too. He's the president of Farr Miller and Washington. Let me take you to the wall, show you where we're currently trading today. Dow's been up for seven straight days. We're down 100 right now. S&P new intraday high for it. 39.73, not that far away from 4,000 there. All the way on the right, 10-year note yield, 160, almost 161. We are very much watching that, Josh, because Wall Street is very much talking about that today. Bank of America fund manager survey, biggest tail risks right now, higher inflation, a taper tantrum. You've got comments today. BlackRock's Rick Reeder says the 10-year could hit 2%. Morgan Stanley says you could have more restrictive monetary policy sooner than expected. Discuss. I think uh, higher rates are probably a bigger risk for some parts of the market than others. I, I don't discount uh, that threat overall as being something to just completely ignore. But the data suggests stock prices have, to- have tolerated uh, much higher interest rates historically. And if rates are rising because the economy is growing and people are making more money, uh, higher rates will be tolerated yet again. So this is nothing new. We've seen rates come off of emergency levels following World War II. Throughout the 1950s, interest rates rose. Stocks went up pretty much the entire time. There was one recession the whole decade. We saw rates rise throughout the 1960s. It was one of the best periods for stocks in human history. Uh, rates rose in uh, you know many periods of time where stocks also did okay. So a lot of this is a function of what else is going on? What are the other variables? So here's the big variable. The Fed thinks it's not going to have to raise rates based on its dot plot until sometime in late 2023. Um, we all know that that's probably not going to stay that way, that expectation. When you look at the average uh, economist talking about 6% GDP growth and the Fed thinking more like 4%, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle for this year. And it's probably more likely that we're talking about rate hikes sometime in 2022. So the market will have to adjust uh, as those two uh, opinions or data sets converge. And maybe that means a 10-year 1.7, 1.8. It's really not going to be a big uh, competitor to people buying stocks instead of bonds until it gets closer to 3%. Mm. And I think if that's the reason why you're underinvested for your future right now, you know, probably a mistake in the long same, term. These same fund managers you know, are, are talking about 2%. Uh, Jenny, on the 10-year could be the level of reckoning. I mean, do you see this now as the biggest risk for investors, the trajectory of interest rates? Because there's so much optimism about the the reopening. 
right? Josh has talked about it. We've all talked about it. We're going to go nuts. We can't wait to get out there and spend money and travel and do all those things we haven't been able to do for the last year. But with that comes the prospect of higher interest rates, which then forces someone's hand, perhaps, that affects the stock market. Josh really nailed his description of it, and it's not about the exact number. It's not about 2%, it's not about 1.75, it's not even really about 3%. It's about how we get there and why we get there. And so let's say we're at 2.5% on the 10-year, but we've gotten there because we have a robust economy. Everything's going well. We're gonna tolerate it. And then we're gonna say like, oh, the next level is gonna be 3% or whatever, whatever it's going to be, but we're going to adjust. It's all about the path. It's all about the economy, the economic support, the business, the, the business climate that stands behind the number. It's not just about the number. Um, I do think as interest rates go up, you see a shift in what's doing well. We've seen that really painfully, obviously this year. So you see a shift, but I think it's tough to say interest rates have gone up and that's caused a market correction. It hasn't. Guess what? The S&P's up 6% no, here today. That's following a year not, where it's up yet. 18%. You're, you're well, not wrong. I mean, it, it, hasn't, no. it hasn't caused one yet, but you say it's all about the path. There are others who suggest it's so all about it the does? pace. So what if it does? Why is it so terrible to have higher rates and a stock market correction? You had one in 1994. You had a, you had a surprise uh, rate hike from Greenspan because things were heating up faster than they had expected after very, very low monetary policy as a result of the SNL uh, scandals and that recession in, in 1991. So in 94, they have to raise rates. The market's caught off guard. The S&P corrects 20% and then triples. Who cares? Why, why mm -hmm. is a market correction the end of the world? Arguably, we just had one I in the care. NASDAQ. 20%? I mean, jo John Najarian cares. 20, 20%, just, you know, okay. It's all good, Doc. Oh, Josh, What's and I guarantee, Josh, people What's gonna will happen? be beaten on your door if we see a big correction. If you see a 20% correction, Josh, people will be banging on that door. You talk about tolerance, and I agree that we can tolerate it, but I don't know that investors can, Josh. Investors are gonna be pulling money like crazy if what you describe happens, no. because they are not very tolerant. And in, well, in that's particular, their problem. That's because they're getting bad. Well, yo, but it'll be your yo, problem. That's because it'll they're be getting problem. bad advice. It'll be the stock market's problem. It'll be everybody's problem, Josh. Because but information guys, investors moves have that proven fast to us that they these days. Hold up. Hold up. Let's not talk over guys, each other. Guys, investors have proven to us that they are tolerant. Sorry, they are tolerant. We tolerated down 20% for the last, last three time. months of 18. Oh, yeah, they may they buy it again. Let's be clear. Hang on. Hang on. Everyone's going to cry. It hurts, but they tolerate Hang it. Hang on. Please. Yeah. They may buy it again, but that 20% downdraft that Josh is talking about is going to feel like 50%. 20% is a lot. Oh, yeah. With, with the expectations yes. of, of what's going to be happening in the economy and the feel-good you know, mojo that we're all going to have, Michael Farr, in getting our lives back. We're not going to be ready for a, a big market disruption. We're going to be thinking that, hey, life is good. Ready for it? Let's good. Life is good. Why isn't the stock market going up? Michael Farr? We're never ready for those big stock market disruptions because when they come, there's always a story we haven't dealt with before. It's always the Fed's pushing something too hard or there's something going on geopolitically that we haven't anticipated. And 
there, there are additional reasons for doom and gloom at those moments, which is how you get down 20 or 30 percent. They feel absolutely awful. Yep. And there's always a it, but it's different this time kind of a moment. And Josh's point is the right point. Uh, you, 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 this is when investors make their money. This is how long term investors are in their stripes. And you endure periods like that. And the smarter ones out there and the more fortunate ones, sometimes I get lucky in those periods and I'm able to buy when we're really down. I do have the strength and the tenacity and the gray hair to know when I should buy when they're down now. But I think what we're seeing, yes, there's a risk of this higher rate spike. In fact, if you listen to Dr. Jay Bryson at Wells Fargo, he says, look, over 6% GDP growth this year. Are you going to see this surge of inflation in August and September? Yes, you're going to see it. Will the Fed blink? Josh thinks yes. A lot of people think yes. But is it episodic? Do it, does it just roll through the economy? No matter how I look at it, when I see $2.8 trillion in stimulus coming in a single quarter this year with the government talking about more, I do not know how you keep stock prices down. Well, I think this market goes significantly higher. Well, what one, one would think, right? Br Bridgewater today talking about the Fed's hand being forced as well. Let's bring in our, our, our Fed whisperer, if you will, Steve Leisman. He's our senior economics reporter. He's got his own exclusive Fed survey. He's with us. He's heard the conversation. And Steve, your survey seems to match up exactly with what some are worrying about today, whether it's the Bank of America fund managers or what Bridgewater is talking about, or even Morgan Stanley of the Fed maybe coming in with a little more restrictive policy than people are ready for. Yeah, they've definitely pulled forward the uh, date of the first tightening. They think the uh, QE will end this year in November. That's the average response. Uh, and they think the first rate hike comes in November 2022, rather than if you go back three or four months, it was in the early part of 2023. But, you know, I guess I wonder, Scott, what did you think was going to happen? If we're going to do 6% growth, um, and then you also have inflation <laughs> ticking up, the average forecast this year sees inflation going from 1.7% to 2.4%. Um, you know, certainly the 10 year is going to rise. And I think Powell means it when he says he wants to let things run a little bit hotter than they had in the past. Mm -hmm. And the forecast shows, Scott, that people don't think the Fed comes in until you're at 2.4, 2.5% in terms of trying to tamp down on the 10 year. He's happy to let it run. And it makes sense to let it run because if you have higher growth, a little bit more inflation, you should have higher bond yields. Sure. And so, Josh, then this is much ado about nothing because 2.4, 2.5, we may not get there. Who knows? Maybe it's a year from now. So are stocks smooth sailing then until that happens, until the Fed blinks or whatever you characterize it as and makes its very first move? Is it smooth sailing for the stock market until that happens? I hope it's not. Uh, I don't know why we were rooting for smooth sailing. Uh, there were 75 million millennials in the workforce. They're somewhere between the ages of 25 and 45. They are forced investors for the next two and a half decades minimum at the high end. In some cases, four decades. They have no choice but to buy stocks. That's how the entire retirement system of this country has been built. So why would they be rooting for smooth sailing? Why would somebody who's 30 years old, who is forced to buy stocks for the next 35 years in a 401k want all-time record high prices and no volatility. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yeah, well, because so Jenny, here's the question. Because Here, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's the question. Where should interest rates be if the economy is growing 6%? We're going to get unemployment by the end of this year at the current trajectory down to 5%. 
which the Fed said is its target. And we're going to approach 2% this fall, hopefully, if we're lucky, in inflation. Where should rates be? Should they be at zero? Does that, does, that make, does that make sense to anybody that we should have emergency level overnight Fed funds rate at zero with an economy growing at the pace that this one is growing? Of course rates should rise. It's not better or worse. It's just a different environment than the one we were in last year. The market will be volatile. And it'll adjust. And then we'll Scott, live our lives. Steve? I think it goes without saying that during that process, you have volatility um, and I think the members of this panel can speak about this more eloquently than I can. But you have volatility. Some people don't want to hold 10 years at one. They do want to hold them at one and a half. And there's a bunch more going to hold them at two and more than two and a half. So those people that, that Josh is talking about are forced to hold equities. That number comes down and you have stock trading hands to get into strong hands with higher interest rates and higher growth. At some point, you know, the 10 year looks attractive for some people. By the way, it's worth pointing out, rates are still negative around the world. So that does keep a cap on how high yields can go here in the United States because that will attract an awful lot of foreign money at some yields. It also, it also influences what exactly I do want to hold, right? You were talking about holding stocks in general. Sure. Jenny, do I want to hold technology stocks at, at 2% on the 10-year, 2.2% on the 10-year, or do I need to be in cyclical stocks now in anticipation of the 10-year running to that and inflation running up to a point of where it starts to simmer a little bit. This is where you know I hate painting and broad brush strokes. There's some technology stocks that you want to hold. There are some cyclicals that you want to hold. There was an interesting article out this week talking about how Willis Towers wants, Watson, which is a big pension advisor, pension and endowment advisor, is starting to push their clients into active management and out of passive. And I think that's an interesting concept that we're going to see more of because what it's saying is that it's not just own tech, it's not just own cyclicals, it's own specific companies. It's be a stock picker, maybe use an active manager if that's what works for you, and take advantage of individual companies who have the ability to outperform in the coming year. Um, you know, when, when I talk about tech, I can shun all the high-flying tech, like the DocuSigns and the Pelotons and the, um, and the, the ones that are just trading at like, you know, I don't even know, a thousand times fake earnings. But then that's different. And even though I don't own Amazon and Google and, and Apple, I can say, hold those. You're probably going to be okay. And then this gets back to, um, back to the path of the market. And is it going to be smooth sailing? Guess what? It's never smooth sailing. It's always bumpy. And so if it's always bumpy in the short, sorry, it's never smooth sailing. It's always bumpy in the short term. But in the long term, 10, 20 years, are Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook going to be okay? Yeah, they're probably going to be That's fine. fine. It but, might you be know, bumpy in the there, short there term. Are, I, I get it. And there are, are a lot of people who watch us who are invested for the next 10 years. And there are some people who are invested for the next 10 weeks or 10 months. Josh said there's going, Doc, to be an adjustment if rates continue to go up, if we start talking more about inflation. What's the adjustment going to look like? And what's it going to feel like? Where are things going to adjust in this market that our viewers need to focus on? Well, uh, the entire panel has said uh, it's going to be uncomfortable. And uh, sure, I do love uncomfort in that regard, Scott, because when people are not uh, sanguine, when they're scared, that's when the opportunities present themselves. A year ago today, we were down 2,800 points um, in a single session. Mm -hmm. um, that 
is the sort of thing that, you know, we all worry about. Do we see that coming at us? No, not because of rates going higher, even though they go higher at a quickened pace. But one of the things we worry about, Scott, is that, for instance, Germany and France and the Netherlands pulling back from AstraZeneca. They were already behind in vaccinations. The fact that emerging markets, many of them, I know those aren't emerging markets that I just described, but emerging markets are having trouble getting or affording um, the vaccines. Um, Now you've got developed markets in Europe that may be well behind us. They might be six months or more behind us, which does put a crimp in a lot of the growth prospects that we're hoping for. Um, But it also might mitigate to some degree, Scott, some of that inflation. Because if Europe can't really participate because of some of the things happening over there with, again, that's the AstraZeneca, not Pfizer, not Moderna, not Johnson & Johnson. But if they back off, from the vaccinations as they have, right. um, that might put a put a little bit of a lid on inflation because, again, those economies aren't going to rage like ours. So, uh, you know, there's that push and pull that's going on. I'm not that concerned about rates where they are. I'm not even concerned with them at two. But I am concerned that investors that think that they have the stomach for it will not have the stomach for it if we see massive disruptions, of course. even though we're not thinking of the sort Every, that we saw last year. Everybody is gung-ho to go on the roller coaster, Doc, until the roller coaster turns you upside down and you start to get a little sick to your stomach. Yeah. That's an adjustment, and that could be what people are going to have to deal with in terms of tolerance for what yep. the market could deliver. Steve, the, the, the bottom line is it, it really depends on what the discomfort level is for Jay Powell and company and how fast we get to that point. Yeah, there's a new uh, relationship now between the bond market and the Fed, Scott, that that is probably as much responsible for the rise in yields. And that's that the Fed doesn't have the bond markets back for the first round of inflation here. Um, Indeed, the Fed has made a big change. It said it's going to go for inflation above 2%. Uh, It said it's going to be looking very strongly at getting back to work. Those people who are typically not even, I guess, even counted when it comes to thinking about recoveries. Uh, Minority unemployment is a big factor for the Fed. That tells the bond market that, hey, you're on your own for a little bit here. I don't think you're on your own for the long haul in the sense that if we have persistent inflation, bond yields that rise above a certain level that makes the Fed uncomfortable, I do think the Fed will act. But I think for the first round, yeah. the bond market's on its own. God and forbid. That means the stock market has to watch its back. I was going to say, God forbid the market yeah. has to stand on its own two feet for the first time in, mm-hmm. you know, seemingly forever. So, M- Michael Farr, yeah. the best trade in the market right now, based on what everybody has said, sounds to me like it is large cap U.S. cyclical stocks. Am I wrong? I I think you're right. And I think it's some of those value names, some of the left behind names. Uh, I think if you think of Stephanie Link's three sort of legged approach that she's been taking for quite a while, uh, some of the comeback stocks, some of those that have been left behind and some of the leadership still make a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I think, though, Scott, as I'm listening to Steve Leisman, Steve, I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure out the real message from, from the Fed. On the one hand, they're still buying and they're still dovish and they're still accommodative. So they're not going away yet as far as the bond market's concerned. It's, it's almost when, when do they stop adding 
Uh, when do they stop the repurchases? How do they message that, particularly if they see a 6% GDP year coming? Well, the, the, the intent of the Fed chair is to message it such as a way that they do not create a taper tantrum. That is the first job of Powell. Um, and, and he has also not a promise, but a forecast that the Fed I mean, is, is really going to hold Steve? on to is those asset possible? purchases. Um, that what? That he. What that do, they what can do you message ask, that the right way. How do you how do you message the taper? I, you want my, in you such want my idea? Markets don't you, freak. You want, yeah. You want you want my idea, Michael? I'm working on an idea here and I haven't had a chance to flush it out fully, but I've got an idea. I'm calling it the taper and twist. It sounds like a dance. So what I think the Fed ought to do is when the Fed announces a taper, it would offer <laughs> the chance or the potential for it to come in and buy the long end in such a way to limit any kind of tantrum the market may have. I don't know that Powell's thought about that. I don't know the Fed is thinking about that. But my thought these days is a taper and a twist so that the Fed does not repeat the like mistake it. that happened in 2013 I, when the bond market went out of its mind because the Fed was thinking about thinking about reducing its asset purchases. I still want to know, you know, and, and maybe, you know, Josh, take this first for the next nine months. Right? Let, let's just I mean, you got a lot of new investors in the market. OK, they're not necessarily thinking 10 years. They may be thinking nine months. So given what you think may happen, to the to the stock market what is the best place right now to be is it as i posed to michael farr u.s centric large cap cyclical stocks or, or what i swear i'm not trying to derail how about this a stream in wyoming scott scott but don't 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 you recognize the incongruity of this premise you have a lot of new investors in the market um, who are thinking more like nine months that's the problem this ridiculous expectation that you're going to put money to work in March of 2021 and the world or the Fed or Jerome Powell owes you uh, upside on that investment. Inside of one year, it's insanity. The problem that we have right now is that if you're a new investor, that kind of environment is all you've ever known and you need to be disabused of, of the notion that that's all there ever is. You're going to be in drawdown. Oftentimes, that'll be the best time to continue to invest. But if you never see that, then how do you ever learn that lesson? I'm going to tell you something. We've had 15% average annual returns for the S&P 500 since the great financial crisis. That is an incredible uh, period of prosperity for the market. I would also mention most of that period was accompanied by some of the most negative, ridiculously bearish commentary uh, coming from everywhere from Wall Street to quote unquote famous hedge fund managers, financial media, et cetera. But that's what it is. That's what the environment has given you. You don't get that for free. So in 20, let's remind everybody, in 2018, with high GDP growth, fresh off brand new tax cuts, we had two massive corrections. One was 16%, one was 20. You had to sit through those to earn that average annual return of 15% a year over the last 12 years. You have to learn to live with volatility. And this idea that we're going to avoid going from a, a recession to growth without any bumps in the road is childish. We've never had it. American investors have never had it. You're not going to have it this time either. You have to grow strong enough mentally to live through that and invest through that. Otherwise, I don't know what you're doing. Of course. Well, those are great words of wisdom, Doc, but you may not get the kind of pullback that 
that Josh says that would be good for everybody to have to go through, especially a newer class of investors, this cohort that has come into the market since the pandemic started. Again, I just go back to the original uh, idea of pent up demand. Josh has used the words people are going to go nuts, right? I, I mean, who doesn't feel it? <laughs> But is there an after oh, yeah. effect and of that on, on the stock market? Maybe, maybe there's not for a while. Well, maybe, maybe there just isn't. Well, well, no, there will be, Scott. And one example is the $600 checks that everybody got, those stimmy checks that everybody got and spent in January. They just revised up that retail sales number for January to what, 7.6, Scott? Um, even though the, the February number was down, of course, um, the January number was revised up. Now, what happens when you get more than double that stimmy in this direct deposit that's happening as we speak, Scott? What's going to happen there? It's going to be spent in retail stores. It's going to be spent on Bitcoin. <laughs> you bet it is, Josh. And I'm looking forward to that. I mean, my Bitcoin tripled, Scott, from the time that I told you in December when we were, you know, exiting a lot of our stock positions, holding on to options. But exiting stock and buying Bitcoin, it has tripled. Will that happen with $1,400 stimulus? Yeah. Will AMC and GameStop, sorts of Reddit stocks, feel a lot of that love? You bet. Some of the more mature folks will do as Josh said, and they will regularly put money into the market rather than dumping it all in at once. But that is going to be what the tail end of this 1400 Scott, is probably when we start feeling something that either makes Jerome Powell trigger finger get a little itchy or something because that's going to be a big surge, this $1,400 surge that we're anticipating in many of those assets so that I just described. You can throw in, Steve, um, now Howard Marks, who is talking about the possibility of rising rates. He has a, his latest memo has, has hit where he says the biggest risk of all is the possibility of, of rising rates. I'm wondering, sort of, Steve, what, what you think the Fed is sitting back thinking about when they, they see the fact that in a year, you know, we've gone from the depths of the decline in the stock market to now the S&P, we're talking about S&P knocking on the door of, of 4,000. We're talking about digital art selling for $40 million. And we're talking about these <laughs> um, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and sort of taking the world by storm. And Bitcoin at 60,000 and SPACs and everybody's got one. Is that influencing the way they're thinking at all? Or is his eye and their, it's just tunnel vision towards the <clears throat> ultimate end game of where inflation may goes and how hot they're going to let it run? I think there's two answers to that question. Uh, and I'll take the latter part first, Scott, which is when you talk about the SPACs and the NFTs and all that stuff, I think that represents a risk to the system that we haven't sp talked a lot about, which is, you know, stocks may be, at least in terms of losing all your money, the safest place to be. Or banks, in terms of losing all your money or creating systemic risk. I think the banks are in pretty good shape. It's all this stuff that's outside the regulated system. Remember, that's the stuff that bit you the last time around. It was the, 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 the CDO squares and the SPVs and all those funky initials that, that really came and brought the economy down. I don't know that we talk enough about that stuff that's outside the system. As for the Fed, I, I'm a little confused about Fed policy right now, Scott, and I have to admit it. I, I feel like Powell and the Fed have drawn two 
bold a line in terms of not ending quantitative easing. I think they could have and should have been coming yes. out of this $120 billion a month of purchases um, you know, a, a lot earlier and, and not really drawn that hard line. So hmm. um, I think they may end up doing that sometime this year. Well, when, when you say, you know, when you go on television and say you're confused about Fed policy right now, Steve, that, that says a lot more than just that one little statement. It's interesting to hear you say that. It's been good having you on. We'll talk to you again soon, Steve Leisman. Thank Pleasure. you. We're Thanks. taking a quick break. Only one person on the investment committee today is making a move in the market. A stock they're either buying or selling. We'll talk about it next. And what is the statement in, in that in and of itself? We will talk about that next. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Courtney Reagan, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. New York Attorney General Letitia James says she's disappointed in Purdue Pharma's new $10 billion plan to exit bankruptcy. She says it's an improvement over a previous offer from the OxyContin maker, but lacks accountability and does not do enough for victims of the opioid crisis. In Myanmar, thousands of residents are fleeing an industrial zone after security forces killed more than 30 protesters over the weekend and five Chinese factories were set on fire. At least two more protesters were killed by police today. After a month in the hospital, Prince Philip has returned home. The 99-year-old royal was treated for an infection and underwent a heart procedure. Israeli archaeologists have announced dozens of fragments of new Dead Sea Scrolls. The fragments are believed to be about 2,000 years old and are the first, first such find in six decades. That stuff is fascinating. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, we appreciate it. That. Thank you so much, Courtney Reagan. All right, Dr. J. So Apple has a new target uh, at Evercore. It ties a street high, 175. That's from 163. That's about a 38% move higher. I mentioned only one person on the show today had any moves, which was surprising to me in and of itself. The fact that you really only have one or two moves is equally as surprising because you're normally pretty active. Maybe not as active as your brother, but, but, yeah. but awfully close. When you've added to your Apple calls, what's that about? Yeah. Well, Scott, uh, just as you say, they got some targets raised over at Apple. 
Um, 30% upside from here is what the, the, the note said. And we noticed immediately, starting right at the opening bell, that they were buying the 127 calls in Apple. So I joined them. They traded 72,000 of those in the first hour and a half or two hours of the day, Scott. That's extreme even in Apple's case. So I added to my exposure in Apple at that strike. I'm not so much chasing that 30% upside as I am trading a short dated option um, just for the pop. It's already doubled, those calls have today. And I'm looking for you know just the chance to get in there and keep selling upside calls against stock that I own, Scott, although it's not as attractive with the VIX breaking down to 19 and so forth, even though that's the overall market VIX, not Apple's VIX. But I like it, Scott. I also took some profits in AMD. We talked last week about the unusual activity and that they had that big meeting yesterday. So I took a little off in AMD. I put that work, that back to work rather in Apple. All right, appreciate that, Doc, thank you. All right, let's talk about Starbucks today. That stock has hit a new all-time high. It got upgraded at BTIG. Street high price target goes to 130. We've made it our call of the day. Josh, you've been all over this for many months. Um, yeah. What do you make of this call? It's a stock that you own. The average price target is now 113 on the street. Again, this goes street high 130. Yeah, you know, I, I had a really interesting conversation with uh, a chief strategist at one of the big banks on the street, and he said something that really stuck with me uh, months and months later. Just this idea that, like, bad things are going to happen, like the pandemic, for example, but that CEOs are just going to sit back and take it and, like, weather it and just, like, do their best to muddle through. Nobody who makes it into the CEO chair at a Fortune 500 company is going to sit back and take anything. These people are type double A, type triple A. So what <laughs> Starbucks did in response to the pandemic was not close a whole bunch of stores and hope for the best. They literally retooled their entire business around this idea that we would come out of the pandemic, but some aspects of consumer behavior would never be the same again. Starbucks had the financial wherewithal to do what they've done, and now that's going to start paying dividends. The reopen is great. A lot of their locations are in touristy areas, they're in airports, business travel is important. The reopen is great. But this CEO and this business was going to turn things around no matter when the vaccine came out. So now it's walk-up windows, it's more drive-throughs, it's a new and improved app experience, it's employees who are better trained to get product out the door faster to more people. And they're killing it. So I'm in the name. I bought it during the crash. I have no intention of selling it. I don't care that it's double the price or whatever, um, because there are companies like this all over the markets that have retooled and are ready for whatever comes next. OK, so, Michael Farr, I'm wondering, you know, whether you care that it's doubled, right, that the, the multiple has expanded too. It's at 36 times forward. And, and oh, by the way, we're thrilled. We've got KJ, Kevin Johnson, the CEO, is with us first on CNBC tomorrow. So we can, we can maybe play I'm some watching. of that sound from, from Josh about that uh, and ask him what the deal is now. Josh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm watching. All right. Yep. I'm sure you, I'm sure you will be. And we'll, we'll probably play some sound uh, from Mr. Johnson tomorrow. What about it, Michael Farr? Is it now getting to the expensive point? 
Oh, yeah, definitely getting to be expensive. And I'm going to be watching, too, because I've owned it for a long time. You know, uh, I, I get nervous uh, at times uh, when I agree with Josh on things, you know, uh, not as nervous as I get when I agree with Weiss, but definitely, <laughs> definitely nervous when I agree when I agree with Josh. And I certainly agreed with Starbucks. I've owned it for a long time. I saw this as a great reopening trade, too, as they were retooling. China was emerging with their Starbucks sales long before. The stock's still expensive, Judge, period. No way around it. Still growing earnings, though, at 15%. Um, it's very fully valued. I'm staying with it. And I think, too, a lot of those incremental dollars that are arriving in stim checks, they're going to go get spent at a Starbucks, too. But this is not a cheap stock at this yeah. point. Yeah, uh, maybe that's why you have 14 holds among the analyst community on it. You do have 19 buys, zero sells, but 14 holds may be reflecting exactly what you're talking about. Michael Farr, again, the uh, 36 yeah. times forward P.E. We'll take a quick break. John's got unusual activity still coming up. Plus, March is Women's History Month. All month long, we are spotlighting some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Arias Asset Management CEO Karen Firestone on what empowered her early in her career. I'm empowered by the fact that I believe in myself. I was one of the few women who worked uh, at Fidelity, but I thought, I can put my mind to something. I can research a company as well. I can understand stocks. I can manage a portfolio as well as the guys. And I just had to remind myself of that all the time because I was so dramatically outnumbered. But I, I thought I can do it. And that's what kept me going. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Unusual activity time. Dr. J, you got three for me today, right? I do, Scott, starting with one of the biggest. Uh, obviously, Microsoft is going to make anybody's top five list. Uh, and this one, they were buying the March 237.50 calls in big numbers, Scott. I talked earlier about Apple and how that had had heavy activity. This one, three to one calls traded to puts. So short-term activity like that, these are options that expire this Friday. I was already in Microsoft. I'm in these 237.50 calls. They are moving up throughout the session. I intend to hold them a couple more days towards Friday. Second trade, Scott, on semiconductor. Semis are hot. We've seen TSM, Taiwan Semi, as well as Intel hitting for unusual activity. This one on semi. They were buying with the stock roughly 41, I think, Scott. They were buying the 43 calls in April. I bought those as well. Um, and I'll probably be in that trade most of the next month, Scott. Lastly, Tech Resources, big Canadian-based company, I believe. Um, and it's not just the sort of resources that we usually discuss, which would be oil and gas. This is also mining, everything from zinc to uh, inputs for steel and so forth, TECK. These calls were very active. I bought those, and I'll probably be in those several weeks, Scott. All right, good stuff. Supersized edition today. Dr. J, thank you. Ask Halftime is next. You can send your questions by video. We will play it on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back right after this. 
Ask halftime time right now. Josh Brown, you are first, and I love the question because it's one I've been wondering about myself and would have asked you about anyway. Adam from the United Kingdom wants to know about CrowdStrike. Is it still a buy? Hey, Adam. So I'm in the stock from lower levels, and I don't think that I would buy today going into earnings because as we've seen from Snowflake and other high-flying, expensive growth stocks, even when they report great results, you don't always get an instantly good reaction in the stock price. So if anything, what I would do with this situation, if you're not in it, uh, is look for uh, the company to report a number that doesn't wow the street. And if you really want to be a long-term investor, I would take advantage of that type of dip and buy in. But going into the earnings, very, very risky strategy. I don't have any edge on what they'll say tonight. I'm hoping for good, but expecting the possibility that it may also be volatile afterward. And I will react rather than try to uh, react in advance. Uh, and that's typically been the way I've played these types of stocks. Adam should watch Mad Money tonight, too, with Jim, because he's got an exclusive with the CEO of CrowdStrike. So that's very timely. Adam uh, from the U.K., tune in. There's George Kurtz is going to be on with Jim a little bit later. All right. Jenny, to you from Sandy in Colorado, I'm underwater in Magellan Midstream Partners. What do I do? What's your outlook now? I wouldn't worry about being underwater on this one. I've owned it since 2006. They've paid and increased their dividend for 18 straight years, and they own 9,800 miles of refined product pipeline all throughout the Midwest. So until farm trucks and equipment and tractors and trailers are all being powered on sunshine and wind, there's going to be huge demand for Magellan's pipelines and the, tra and the energy that it transports. I would stick with it. It's almost a 9% yield. The yield alone is going to get you out of that hole. All right, good stuff. Dr. J to you, John in New York, uh, another John in New York. Uh, what's your take on Palantir? You got, you know, CARP, the CEO, uh, is an exclusive today on Closing Bell, so we're excited about that. You own the shares and the calls, so you should have a good opinion on yep. what you think. What, what's the deal? Right. Uh, well, Scott, I couldn't buy it on the IPO, but I bought it right after that. I thought it was vastly undervalued where it was delivered to the market. It had tripled since that level, um, and now it's pulled back to around the 2570 level, I think, Scott. 25, John, should be pretty decent support. 2250, very strong support. When these guys get contracts, they are huge, and they're very actively out there looking for those big contracts. They're elephant hunting. I'm sure Mr. Karp will talk about that on Closing Bell. I will be tuned in for that. Scott. All right, his conversation with Wilf, one we're looking forward to. All right, uh, Michael Farr, Edward in Alabama. CVS has an attractive valuation. However, since I use Amazon instead of drug, drug stores and grocery stores for my RX, the future seems dim. Is it investable? Inquiring minds want to know, Michael Farr. Uh, yeah, uh, Edward, this is one of the most frustrating positions I own because it's one of the cheapest, best, greatest kind of companies on paper I can find. I just can't get the performance out of it, but I'm holding it. I would buy it today. Ten times earnings, growing earnings at 10 percent, two and three quarter percent dividend. And 70 percent of the people in this country live within three miles of a CVS and they're all going to go there to get their vaccine and buy stuff as they walk in and walk out. I love this company. I just need to see the stock performance get better. All right. Good stuff. Thank you for that. The 10-year yield, it's holding at about 1.6%. The two-day Fed meeting is kicking off. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that. We'll do it when we come back. There it is, 161. We said it was on the cusp of that at the top of the hour. We're back in two. It's time for the futures outlook. Treasury yields, they are edging higher as we speak. 
as that two-day Fed meeting begins. Scott Nations and Jeff Kilberg are here with us now. For more on that move, do you have a where's, where's the direction here now, Kilberg? Are we have too much momentum to the upside? Is Jay Powell going to say something t- today We're or judging. tomorrow that's going to make the difference here? I think he is. I think he talks and walks yields down. But similar to the fireworks we saw at the beginning of your show, talking about a 20% pullback, I want to stick with that 20% pullback theme, but I'm going to apply it to the 10-year note. I'm looking for yields to go back down to 1.28. And how are we going to get there? It's an old vernacular from the floor, Judge. It's back and fill. I think on the charts, we saw those futures sell off dramatically. And of course, futures are inversely related to the yield. So I think we see a back and fill up higher in the futures, which is going to bring those yields down. But yes, you're absolutely right. Fed Chairman Powell, he will be the catalyst. Okay. Scott Nation, is that how you see it? Yields coming down? Uh, He's going to talk them down? I'm looking at fun- I'm looking at fundamentals, Scott. And Killer and I could not disagree more on this one. And I think it's all Beautiful. about supply when you look at the fundamentals. It's about time. Uh, you know, last week we had huge supply, well more than $100 billion. Today we're going to get a one-off 20-year, $24 billion worth of that. And, Scott, on Thursday we're going to find out what they're going to sell next week. And because of the longest duration, longest maturity next week is only seven years, the total number for next week could be $150 billion. That would be huge. And so I think supply is going to depress bond prices, and that's going to increase yields. All right. Most important conversation, arguably, right now in the market. Guys, thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. We'll do final trades next. Final trade time. Jenny, you're up first. Unum, six times earnings, 4% dividend yield. As unemployment goes down and interest rates go up, it's nothing but positive for this company. Okay. We will keep our eyes on that one, down about 3.5% today. Michael Farr. I like Truist. It's the merger of SunTrust and BB&T. It's got a 3% dividend. It's a little weaker today. This gets a 6% GDP growth. That's loan growth. This is going to be good for banks. Yeah, pretty good environment for banks. Rates continue to go up. That's for sure. Mike, thank you. Dr. J. I talked about the semis earlier, Scott. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, also on our unusual activity scan. I added to that one today. I already owned it. All right, the TRB. Uh, Alphabet, best-looking chart in all of large-cap tech going higher. All right. Everybody, thank you. Let's get one more market check, too, on a day. The Dow's been up for seven straight days, got a little bit of work to do. S&P sets a new intraday high. We're watching the 10-year as well at 161. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.